You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, and welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. TJ, I have a voice. You have a voice. It's it's awesome. You were, you did recover fairly quickly, though, because I feel like I saw you two days after the last recording at work, and it was better. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it was like laryngitis. I think it was just that I had gotten... Boat throat, yeah, which I I made up, but it's probably a thing. Um, I was gonna say ocean voice, like it happens if you're out at sea or like, <laughs> well, the salty the salty air, you know, can make you sound all uh, Jones Co- Joan Collinsy. I I think it was probably more of the there were literally a thousand children on the boat and. They just share everything. We were with three yeah, toddlers you, ourselves, and so... Yeah, but you weren't, like, sick. No, I was sick. I was actually sick, and... The, oh, well, thank the, you for having me over to record. <laughs> no, the voice... The vo- the, I had gotten sick on the boat. Right, right, And right. so then it was, like, another week, and then we recorded, so... Oh, okay. But, like, by the time I saw you, I was not contagious anymore. It was just, like, gross throat. Well, I'm not sick now, so you're forgiven. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> How was your week? Uh, it's good. A little busy. A little busy. Getting between all the live shows for AGT and getting ready for my family to come visit and to bring us new babies. Babies equals dogs, y'all. Puppies. Yeah. It's been really busy. We're scrambling to finish up the last little bits, but but we're making good progress, so. So I'm going to dive into the episode today. Because there's there's a lot to go through, and you guys, there's going to be, at some point, a cut. That is really tiny print, by the way. Like, my last episode was 18 pages, but at least it was, like, size 14 font. Like, it was giant. Pretty sure this is 11. <laughs> this is, like, two pe- two parts in and of itself, you crazy. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I told you guys it was going to be a three-part episode, and I was telling Tracy... Why it was going to be three parts. One part is going to, and I'll, I'll tell you guys who we're covering in just a minute, but you probably figure it out already, especially if you're looking at Instagram, because um, week one, we're going to cover the early part of his life. Week two is the latter part of his life. And then week three, we're going to be doing a very special episode called What's the Difference? And that's because we have a feature film about Freddie Mercury's life. Woo! <laughs> I'm so jazzed that we're doing this right now because when this episode drops, this past, I believe, Wednesday will have been his 73rd birthday. And so that's why we had to make sure that we got all of the episodes out at a good time so that we could celebrate the birth of Mr. Freddie Mercury. And so happy birthday, Freddie. We love you very much. I know he can hear us because, I mean, obviously he can hear me. (laughs) He listens to podcasts in heaven. Oh, 100%. He never misses an episode of ours. Yep. He's like, I know these people. They're all up here. 
They're just <laughs> like these girls are obsessed with me. Just the, one, just one of them is completely obsessed. The shorter one. <laughs> so I'm gonna jump in because, yeah, like Tracy says, I have about 21 pages for this first episode, and you guys are gonna notice. And a, it's really small print. I'm scared. Well, it's gonna go fast. This may turn into a four part. Let's be honest. It might. It actually. Might. Even then, though, even though. <laughs> I was like, make it three parts. Keep but, it to three. But that means no more that than three. on my birthday, we get more Freddy. Oh, jeez. And then you don't have to do episodes for four weeks. So there you go. All right. So let's get started <laughs> on this monster of an episode. And then, of course, I'm going to start someplace really weird because it is a part of his history. And usually I don't cite our sources anymore at the top, but... A lot of the first part of this episode comes from a book called Somebody to Love. It is a dense book, but this guy takes these sidesteps farther than Tracy could ever go. And literally, <laughs> the first chapter is talking about how the HIV virus began. So this is a very dense book with a lot of information in it. And so it's it's really interesting, but I, I I took I picked and choose what I pulled from this because he does take these massive sidesteps and does what I would consider speculation and things like that. And so I try to avoid that. And the other thing is that I am not going to talk about the speculation of Freddie Mercury's sexuality in his early years because that's gross to talk about the sexuality of a child. So there you uh, go. Yes. So sorry about that. I will be talking about it later, but I just didn't think it was appropriate to speculate on a child. Uh, no, it's, so, that's nasty. Yeah. So sorry, guys. I'm just not going to do it. So here we go. Bami Balsor was born into a family of Parsi. Is that uh, his real name? No. This oh. is his father. Oh. But again, like I said, I'm starting in a very weird spot because this kind of explains who Freddie is as a person okay. about his his background. So Bami Balsora was born into a family of Parsi, which is a group of religious followers of the Iranian prophet Zoaster, meaning Persian. The Parsis immigrated to India from Iran to avoid a brutal religious persecution by the Muslims in the 8th century and settled predominantly in Bombay and towns and villages to the north of the city. Bami was uh, one of eight brothers, and out of necessity and hardships, one by one, he and his brothers left India and sailed almost 3,000 miles across the Indian Ocean to the exotically named Zanzibar, seeking work. In a, <laughs> what? I'm not going to cook it, but I'll order it from Zanzibar. <laughs> I'm so happy that you thought, because every time every I wrote time that... I I, see Every time I hear that, that's all I think about. <laughs> God bless you, Jack Black. You should do more music. <sighs> all right. Sorry. I'll go back to my corner. Okay. Upon arrival, he, he actually was fortunate and found work almost immediately when the British government was a high court cashier in Stonetown. Settling into life on the island quickly and comfortably, he dedicated himself to his work and did diligently and slowly built himself a privileged lifestyle. However, he desired a family to share his high standard of living with. Having arrived in Zanzibar unmarried and alone, 
Part of his job meant that he had to frequently travel throughout Zanzibar as well as returning to India. During one of those trips to his home, he met Jar, a bespeckled and dainty young girl 14 years younger than he was. And it was love at first sight. And they married shortly in Bombay, whereupon Jar left her own family to follow her new husband westward across the Indian Ocean back to Zanzibar, where they hoped to raise a family of their own. The newlyweds lived in a two-story apartment that was accessed by a, a flag of stairs from the busy Shanghai streets in Stonetown on the western side of the island. Compared to other couples in Zanzibar, the Balsaras enjoyed a high standard of living, even enabling them to purchase a small family car. Almost 60 years later, Jarrah recalled it as being a comfortable life. It was on Thursday, the 5th of September, 1946, the Parsi New Year's Day, when their first child was born at the government hospital in Stonetown. The boy weighed almost seven pounds at birth, and he was given the name Farouk Bolsara. At the age of five, Farouk attended the Zanzibar Missionary School, an establishment run by British nuns in Stonetown. According to his mother... The boy showed an interest in music and performing, obviously, and he used to love playing records all the time and then sing any sort of folk, classical music, or Indian music, and when his parents attended various functions or parties, it was always little Farouk and toe, and it was actually pretty common that at these parties he would be asked to sing, and he was always eager to oblige and perhaps even show off. Calm down, lady. So excited. <laughs> She's so geeked out right now. Like, <laughs> well, I was the same way because my mom put me in, you know, tap dancing lessons and singing lessons. And so I would put on plays with my brothers and, um, well, my brother. And that made that sound like I had multiple brothers. I've only got one brother. In 1952, Farouk's sister, Kashmira, was born. He was six, oh, so this is a quote from her. He was six when I was born, so I only had one year with him. And the reason why she says that is because at age seven, he was sent to boarding school in India in 1955. He attended St. Peter's boarding school after undergoing the traditional cleansing ritual, which indoctrinated him into the Zoroastrian faith. At this time, he began taking piano lessons. The school was about 3,000 miles from Zanzibar, and for the next few years until 1963, Farouk would only see his parents once a year for a month long. And each summer he returned home and Jared would cry when they would leave him when he would go back to school. But he would kind of ignore her and just mingle with the other boys. And he was quite happy and saw it as an adventure as some of his parents' childhood friends had also gone there. So, you know, he had this idea that some of the people that he looked up to also went to the school. And so he was totally fine with going. Whether he was really happy and whether he actually saw his new life at boarding school as an adventure is truly hard to judge. Any eight-year-old being sent to school 3,000 miles away from their family could well find it hard to adjust with their new surroundings. In his book, The Making of Them, The Colonial British Attitude Toward Children and the Boarding School System, author Nick Duffel claims that sending a child away to boarding school as young as eight is tantamount to child abuse. He says that he receives thousands of letters from people who feel like they've been damaged by the experience of being sent away to board as a child. They cannot form bonds with others, and then children need to be brought up in the company of people who love them. 
Teachers, however good they may be, cannot supply that love. Farouk rarely talked about his schooling and about his time in boarding in India later in life, and some people speculate that he didn't go into his childhood that much because he didn't because he, he went to school in India and didn't want to be considered Indian. Yeah, so if people go, oh, well, he went to school in India, look at him, he must be Indian. He, he didn't want to be considered that. He used to say that he was Persian. He liked the idea of being Persian, which he thought was a little bit more exotic, whether you're a rock and roll star or a wrestler. In a later interview in 1974, Freddie would say that my parents put me up in boarding school because they thought it would be good for me, so they sent me there when I was seven, and I look back on that, and I think it's marvelous. You can learn to look after yourself, and it taught me to have responsibilities. During his early terms at school, Farouk was incredibly shy and terribly self-conscious about his prominent upper teeth, which was, uh, this is a very cool thing, his overbite was caused by the extra four teeth at the back of his mouth giving him a pronounced overbite. And that's kind of like one of those iconic things in rock. And it's been debated whether or not if he had had them removed, would that have limited his vocal range? So more space, uh-huh. in, more space in his mouth gives him a higher range. And there's, there's back and forth sure. on it. Some people think that if he had had them removed, it would have damaged his, his range if he had kept them or, you know, it wouldn't have mattered. So there's, there's people on both sides of the fence. But I feel like they probably should have just asked Roger Taylor, who was studying to be a dentist, I should See, say. See, there you go. So because of his overbite, and kids are terrible, his fellow pupils gave him the nickname Bucky. However, he was soon to adapt another name given to him by his teachers, and that was Freddie. And it was an affectionate term, and I actually didn't look up why Freddie is an affectionate term, but it was. Well, it's better than Bucky. Yeah. He seized on the name instantly, and from that moment on, Farouk became Freddie. And so that's the genesis of the name Freddie. It was an affectionate name given to him by the nuns in school. Well, there you go. Despite being so far away from his parents, Freddie soon got over his homesickness and immersed himself in school activities, particularly sports. And there's actually kind of a famous photo of him in, like, the boxing stance. And I will post that on Instagram. The school had a very strong emphasis on sports, and he ended up doing every single one of them. He did boxing, cricket, table tennis, all of which he was really good at. And he was also reasonably good at sprinting and hockey, sports which were all totally approved by his mother, except for boxing. (laughs) Freddie was excellent at all the sports, but when I heard about boxing, I wrote him from Zanzibar, where we were living, and I told him to stop doing that. I didn't like the idea. It was too violent. All right. It's a total mom thing to do, though. 100%. Despite being good at sports, Freddie was increasingly attracted to subjects such as art, literature, and, of course, music. He had already been introduced to music, predominantly opera, by his parents in Zanzibar, but he actually developed a taste for Western pop, especially the piano, brass, rock and roll sound that artists were doing at the time, such as Little Richard and Fats Domino. While at St. Petersburg during that time, he joined the choir and took part in a number of theatrical productions. Freddie also encountered the recordings of, okay, and I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm going to butcher this last name, but it was Lata Mangeshkar, one of India's best known and respected playback singers. And you might be wondering what a playback singer is, but it's a person that records songs for soundtracks and actors or actresses to lip sync the songs for the films. 
uh, playback singer is not really common in contemporary Hollywood as musicals are less frequent now. However, it was more widely used in the past. Notably, Hollywood performances included Marnie Nixon in West Side Story, and she did the voice of Natalie Wood. And The King and I for Deborah Kerr's voice and Audrey Hepburn in... I was going to say, Audrey Hepburn had it for My Fair Lady. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn had it for My Fair Lady. Billy Lee was singing for John Kerr's Lieutenant Cable in South Pacific and for Christopher Plummer's Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, which legit had me shook when I when I figured out that Captain Von Trapp, that wasn't his real voice. Oh, yeah? I felt that way when, about the My Fair Lady thing, but I, I mean, I get it. For some reason... And maybe it was just like the mix that I saw. So I, I, I felt like it probably wasn't her, but she had sung in Breakfast at Tiffany's. She did Moon River and Breakfast at Tiffany's where she has well, like yeah, the ukulele and stuff. It's not like she sings a whole song. She just sings a little bit. Yeah. But still, like, I, I it didn't match up because I, I went on an Audrey Hepburn bender when I was like 16. And so, but it didn't, the, the two voices weren't the same. No. Um, I recently watched Funny Face with. Audrey Hepburn, finally, because it's been on my list forever. Man, oh man. her And I, I love her dearly. But n- no, don't let her sing. <laughs> so that's what a, that's what a, a playback singer is. Uh, she, Lada, had recorded songs in over a thousand Hindi films and has sung songs in over 36 regional Indian languages and foreign languages, though primarily in the Marahiti, Hindi, and Bengali Freddie became fascinated with her and attended one of her concerts in Bombay in 1959. Yeah, 1959. And two years later, she actually visited his school and performed at the Summer Fet in front of Freddie and other students. And you're going to see that he will kind of latch onto an artist and study them and become almost bordering on obsession. And there's somebody in here that will be a later episode that TJ will probably do. And you'll find out the level of his mania for this person. Hmm, who does that sound like? Me? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Precisely. Because you haven't pulled together like 50 pages of research on Freddy. I want to write my own book now. (laughs) Well, you probably could now. Yeah. In terms of Freddy's own singing, it was his maternal aunt who first became properly aware of his natural musical gift. Once when he was nine, she remembers Freddie used to come running up for breakfast and the radio was on. And when he would finish his breakfast, he would walk over to the piano and play the same song that they had just heard on the radio. He could hear a song and then almost immediately play it. And that was that called? It's I'm blanking. I don't know what it's called. I mean, just recall. Oh, oh pff, duh. Playing by ear. Oh, yeah. I, I thought you were talking about like a specific term. No, no, no. It was like a thing. It was oh. like a thing. I could not, I couldn't think of it. So, yeah. so he had the ability to just play a song by ear. She persuaded his parents to pay for private music tuition, and he subsequently managed to pass grade five exams in practical, um, in practical and theory. And he was presented with his certificate on the 7th of November, 1958. The boarding school that young Farouk went to was known for being modeled on the conservative British culture, which focused on discipline. Proper etiquette was taught and encouraged. The authoritative atmosphere did nothing to deter Farouk, and he had the uncanny ability to pick up tunes that he had just heard, even though they kind of tried to sway him away from the Western influence of music. 
to more of the classic folk Indian persuasion of music. Right. Because also remember, like, these are very conservative people with very old values. And this new kind of music is moving in, which is Western pop, which people would look down upon at the time. It wasn't really right. accepted, especially in something in a, in a country that was so conservative. Right. He had started singing in the school choir and his talent was quickly spotted by a teacher who asked his parents to sign the young lad up for school musics to nurture his talent. Thus began a period of music and Mercury's many music teachers encouraged him. And in 1958, he formed his first band. By then, he had developed a close friendship with four other people at St. Peter's. They were, okay, I'm going to get some of these names and I'm going to completely screw up the other ones. Because uh, I could not find pronunciations for their names. But one was Bruce Murray. That was an easy one. Farang Arani. Derek Branchet. I think he might be French. I don't know. And Victor Rana. Under the name The Hectics. They began playing something in their own rudimentary way. Which was their, their sort of version of rock and roll. And for someone who was later to become one of music's most expressive and flamboyant performers... Freddie's role in the fledgling band was very much playing in the background, playing his own style of boogie-woogie piano and providing backing vocals while Bruce Murray took on the role of lead singer. The band covered Elvis, Cliff Richards, and Little Richard and adopted the look of their idols with thin trousers, pointy shoes, etc. One of Mercury's former bandmates from the Hectic said the only music that he listened to and played was Western pop music. A friend from the time recalls that he had the uncanny ability to listen to the radio and replay what he had heard on the piano and all we really wanted to do was impress the girls in the neighboring girls school the hectics dressed in their rock and roll uniforms became the star attraction at any school function and also became popular with the city's inhabitants where they were known as the heretics because <laughs> nice <laughs> because they were so different and extreme for the time but when Freddie left St. Peter's School on the 25th of February, 1963, having failed class examinations in 10 different classes, the hectics were no more, and he actually returned to Zanzibar. So that was his experience in boarding school. But you can see the roots of rock tar starting to, right. to take hold, and you can already see that he has this kind of incredible talent that is just starting out. And at this point, he's... 16, I think. Something like that. I can't math. What's the year? 63. And he was born in? 46. 17. So TJ likes to do this, and I decided that I also wanted to do this because there's no proper place to put this fact except for right here. Fun fact, his school friends only found out that Freddie Mercury was Farouk Basura a long time after the celebrated frontman had died of AIDS-related pneumonia. One of his friends told Scroll, which is, uh, I believe, a newspaper or... Yeah, I, I couldn't... Because this is not on Scroll's website. It's on a completely different website. That they had lost track of Freddie after school and only realized who he was when someone gave him a magazine cutting of Mercury that mentions him and the school band, The Hectics. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> nice. Like, they lost touch with Freddie and didn't realize who he had become until, like, well after he had died. What? Yeah. That doesn't even make sense, because he was everywhere. You don't see a picture of him anywhere and be like, hey, I know him. 
good, well, good on you, buddy. Like, really? Well, he also had a, a name change. Right, but... And there's a 3,000-mile like, separation. But I also feel like there's you would be able to tell from a photo, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, especially because there's no shortage of information about him, clearly. However, if you look at pictures of me when I was young, I don't look the same. Like, I, I just don't. And if I was like... Now my name is Maria Von Trapp. You might not know who I was either. Yeah, all right. Because he's still he's still a, basically a baby at this point. Yeah, all right. Freddie returned home to Zanzibar in 1963, the year that it gained independence from Breton, and he completed his last year of education at the Stonetown Roman Catholic Saint Joseph's Convent School. That is a lot of words for school. Leslie Ann Jones writes in her biography. A friend from that time recalled to Jones how they would used to go swimming in the sea at school or take bike rides out to the beach further south. He was always smartly dressed, remembers, you're going to laugh at this name, Bonzo Fernandez. <laughs> That's a kind of a bitchin' name. Sorry, Bonzo. Bonzo Fernandez. I like it. Bonzo Fernandez. Oh, I dig it. Yeah. He, he really wanted to move from England, and he loved the culture and the music, he still lived at home with his parents and still continued his education, and a move seemed very unlikely. But significant events were about to cause a massive upheaval in Zanzibar, and that ultimately led to the entire family with their very lives in danger packing up and flying to the UK. In 1964, a revolution overthrew the ruling Arab elite and the Sultan of Zanzibar, and as many as 17,000 people were killed. A republic was then established with the presidents of Zanzibar, and uh, I'm so sorry, I cannot pronounce this country's name. I'm terrible. Tanganyika on the mainland signing an act of union. They formed the United Republic of Tanzania with Zanzibar having a semi-autonomous status. The Balsora family, along with others, fled the island. They could have traveled to India, but doing only to the fact that Freddie's father actually had a British passport and he worked at the British government in Zanzibar, they actually chose to fly to England. And in May of 1964, the Balsara family arrived at Heathrow Airport. They settled into a four-bedroom house at 22 Gladstone Avenue, Feltham, a suburban town in the west of London borough of Hoslow. I apologize if you live there and I am butchering your names. I'm sorry. <laughs> Freddie was extremely excited to have finally made it to London, but like his parents, it was really tough. They would have what would be considered a very privileged life, where they had domestic servants, and not to mention the tropical weather, and now they have to live in, you know, a smaller house, and basically London weather, with the noise of Heathrow Airport almost always a constant. And actually, Britain itself was not the most welcoming of places toward immigrants in the 1960s. So they kind of move from this great privileged life where they can board their son and give him a really good education, tropical weather. They had domestic servants. I'm not sure what that means, but they had them. They had servants. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you mean that you don't know what that means. I they had Domestic help. They had servants. You could just say they had maids. They had maids, butlers, cooks, cooks, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But then, and now they have to move to more cramped quarters, you know, crappy weather, and the sounds of an airport. <laughs> so 
it was tough. And people in London weren't as welcoming to immigrants, even though technically Bami was working for the British government. So in a sense, not really an immigrant since Zanzibar was under British rule at the time. So I don't know. I'm not getting into 1960s politics from a country that I've never even visited before. I was going to say, probably let's not step on that grenade. Yep. Freddie was approaching his 18th birthday with the excitement of finally being in England, but that was kind of tempered by the fact that his life was somewhat at a crossroads. His education in India and in Zanzibar had been a failure, but he was keen on reviving his studies in London at a local art school. But that's not what his parents wanted for him. They, his mother would have loved for him to have become a lawyer, but wouldn't all moms? Kind of. Lawyer, doctor. Yeah. Something. Uh, But yeah, he told his mom that he wasn't that clever. He was like, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to be a lawyer or a doctor. Sorry. And he. Thank goodness for that. He would actually fill out job applications, but deep down inside, he would hope that they would get rejected. So I (laughs) said, like filling out applications for jobs and just like. Like, please don't hire me. Please don't hire me. Please no. (laughs) Uh, His desire to go to art school wasn't so much a passion to study painting or sculptures or textiles, but a determination to follow the path that many English pop stars had previously tread. While in Zanzibar, he had read a few Western magazines that were able to reach the island, and it was almost the norm for pop stars to attend an art school first, and he had his heart set on Ealing Technical College, Ealing. Ealing, Ealing Technical College and School for the Arts, and that had famous alumni, which were like Ronnie Wood and Pete Townsend. And it's true because didn't Janice go to architecture school briefly? She didn't really do the school thing. Like she, something like she started and stopped college like three or four times. But Freddie's lack of educational success in India and Zanzibar meant that he did not have the required qualifications to be accepted in his desired school. The only option for him was to attend a foundational course at another educational establishment. 35 minutes away by bus was uh, from Freddie's home was Isleworth Polytechnics, where in September 1964, he began his arts fundamental course, where he would hope to get levels in the school that he needed to to get into Ealing. Little did he know that also living in the same small town as he was, just a few streets away from his home, was a 17-year-old physics student. This teenager was a keen guitarist who had been unable to afford a much-coveted Fender Stratocaster that he so desired. The only solution was to build one himself. So over the next 18 months, with the help of his father, He built an electric guitar to precise specifications. He and his dad built it from scratch using the wood from a 200-year-old mantelpiece. Wow. That guitar would be called the Red Special. Yummy. Or the mantelpiece or the old lady. Mm. Freddie would be introduced to this teenage guitar wizard during a random meeting in London I'll have more on this later. But that would prove to be a pivotal moment in music. If you can't guess who that is, that was Brian May. (laughs) (laughs) More on this later. Oh, well, let me just tell you. I'll just tell you right now. (laughs) Let me just tell you who it is. (laughs) 
But I feel like if you know who the, like, if you're listening to this episode, chances are you know what Brian May's guitar is called. <laughs> I did not know what it was called. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful guitar, too. It is a, oh. Sounds like it probably would be. It's gorgeous. Freddie attended the Polytechnic from 1964 to 1966. And in terms of getting in to head toward the school that he actually wanted to, it kind of served its purpose. He gained three O levels in art, history, and English, and had a crucial level A in art and fashion. And they have like a whole different grading system over there. So I guess that's good. I don't know. Like literally the, the whole process of the, the British school system that I know of came from Harry Potter. So <laughs> I don't know if that's... So he got owls? I don't know. Outstandings. What's A then? Amazing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the school kind of gave him the, the fundamentals that he needed to, to A, go to the school that he wanted to, but it actually exposed him to uh, the fashion and the films that would kind of become birthing grounds for his kind of style and to the English pop culture of the time and of course to the westernized music so it was it served its purpose and it gave him a good foundation for what he needed to learn it actually should be noted at this time even prior to his life with Queen Freddie always had a dramatic and sort of standout style all of his own one of his closest friends at polytechnics Adrian Morris recalls how Freddie stood out early on he dressed weirdly and he would have like drain pipe trousers that weren't quite long enough and middle-aged jackets that were too small. So weird, I guess, for the time. All right. His sister, Kashmir, also remembers Freddie from earlier on, of course. His sister would recall how Freddie stood out against other boys of his age because at the time it was fashionable to have a hairstyle with, that was long and shaggy. But when he arrived, Freddie would have like a very old Cliff Richards look. So it was really shiny and his hair going backwards and standing up in that kind of look. He would just look odd. So between like the slicked back hair with like the porcupine back and the jackets that were too small and the stovepipe jeans that were too short, he just looked weird. <laughs> and so he would go out with his sister and they would get off at the bus stop and she would actually walk a couple feet behind him so that people wouldn't know that she was with him. <laughs> which i think is funny <laughs> i've been binging friends while i'm watching while i've been working in the house like i just have it on in the background but one of the one of the quotes that reminds me of is when they're in london and joey's getting the hat and he's like how can i answer you when i'm pretending not to know you <laughs> <laughs> yep Chan that's chandler says that that's kind of yeah that's kind of what kitchener was doing she's like i don't know who this guy is while living in London, he learned guitar. Much of the music that he liked was guitar-oriented, which is interesting because it seemed like piano was kind of his his instrument at the time. Yeah, he's evolving. He is evolving. His favorite artists at the time were The Who, The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie, and Led Zeppelin. All very good choices to be your favorites. Yeah, great inspirations. Yes, his persistence and determination to fit in led him to join the Polytechnic's youth choir and theater group, and he appeared in a couple of productions like The Kitchen and Spectrum, but music was always his first love, and he was kind of struggling to find an outlet for his passion. And I get that. We were talking about that before. Is like, you know, since Janis Joplin was our freshest episode, 
um, at a young age, she kind of had to be coddled because she had this frustration because she had all of this inspiration and passion and she had no outlet for it. And so right. she needed to she needed to find that outlet, which I think is where Freddie is at right now. During the nights and weekends, he would sometimes join friends at local pubs where he would watch bands. And it's crazy to think he would go to the band and watch this kid named Rod Stewart play. Oh, yeah, that guy. Just like a bar and watch Rod Stewart. Some rando, whatever. He'll never amount to anything. (laughs) (laughs) And it's crazy to think that Rod Stewart even playing at a bar because he's so huge now. But uh, during this time... They all had to start somewhere. It's true. I mean, Queen started in bars, so... Exactly. During this time, Freddie would work at menial jobs just to earn a little bit of cash, like washing pots at Heathrow Airport or stacking crates uh, at a nearby industrial estate. And (laughs) I want to see these pictures. He was even paid five euro per session as a nude life model. Well, all right then. Yeah. In September of 1966, he finally got to enroll in Ailing School to study a course in fashion designing, and that's all that Freddie had dreamed about. It was his chance to study art and follow in the footsteps of the musicians that he had looked up to for so long. And after a while, the daily commute from Felton to Ellington uh, proved to be a drag for Freddie, so he started crashing on the floor of a friend's flat, and this was in Kensington. So he would basically just crash on the floor of his buddy's house that was closer to the school. Despite following his dreams, it wasn't long before Freddie became disenchanted with his courses in kind of his dream school. Like, and that's gotta be... Yeah, but he's working in fashion. He's not working on music. Yeah. But it's it's odd to think that you have like, oh God, I really want to go to the school. I really want to go to the school. I'm going to do every all the steps that I need to take to go to this one institution. He finally gets here and you're like, meh. That happens though. I know. But he's, again, you said he's studying fashion, not music. Yeah. I mean, it's like I first started, when I first started college, I ended up, I started with pharmacy and I'm like, F this, no. So I made it like a semester through that and I was like, this is boring. So I dropped out of that second semester and then I started design school, made it through my minor for interior design. By then I was over that because at the end of the day, music was calling. Yeah. So you get this and, and and this actually only intensified and this is one of those crazy you can pinpoint the exact moment where someone makes a turn in their life because on December 16th, 1966, the TV show Ready Set Go aired an episode that featured a performance by Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. He was performing the song Hey Joe and Freddie was so captivated by Hendrix that he actually saw him around 14 times, including nine nights in a row at pubs all around London. He said, I would scour the country to see him wherever he was playing because he really had everything that a rock and roll lifestyle should have. Freddie, yeah. But he he would look up to Jimmy because literally he had everything that Freddie had wanted in life. He was an incredible musician, a great songwriter, very fashionable. He would light up a room when he walked in. And that's all Freddie wanted. Yeah. I mean, I think the common theme for Freddie's life, though I didn't really leave it in, was Freddie trying to fit in. And I didn't really include a lot of the 
lot of that that sentiment. But the fact was, Freddie spent the majority of his early life just trying to fit in. There are a lot of things that, that made him an outsider, and all he wanted was a place to belong. And I feel like at some point he saw that Jimi Hendrix didn't do that. He didn't try to fit in. He just did. Well, he made his own place to fit in. But, I mean, there was a lot of different artists at the time doing similar things, and I think that they made that niche for themselves, and that's not only where they belonged and where they succeeded and thrived, it's also where others like them could come and be accepted. And, you know, I mean, Janice was the same way. She was trying to figure out and trying to fit in and trying to find a place to belong and what, you know, within her inner own inner monologue of, you know this is what I feel like I should have and this is what I want and this is, you know, I live somewhere in between. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's I think it's common of a lot of musicians in general, but especially of that time. Because there's still, on one side, very conservative values and, and lives, but then also on the other side you have a very different zone like there's a lot of conflict I feel like at that time within these artists of like where do I fit in? Yeah. And I think that happens with you you see that actually a lot in the the 60s because before that there was such a divide of classes. There was high class, middle class, low class, first class, second class, third class. And now they're finding this divide of people who are really well-educated but barely behaved, you know? And it's these people that are trying to break out of these social norms and they're considered radical and they have these ideas that don't belong to their parents. And I think that that's when the best art is made. Yeah. Is when you stop emulating your parents and start creating your own. Right. I was just going to say one of my favorite, and I don't know how well it applies at this point, but one of my favorite quotes is, uh, well-behaved women rarely make history. Yeah. (laughs) When you were saying they're educated but barely behaved, I'm like, (laughs) So basically, Freddie was inspired by Jimi Hendrix, and Freddie would later say that he didn't have to force anything. He would just make an entrance, and the whole place would be on fire. He was living out everything I wanted to be. There you go. Yeah. Somewhere between 1967 and 1968, Freddie was actually asked to leave the fashion course by the principal, owing to the fact that he was spending way too much time away from school and missing too many critical classes. (laughs) But incredibly, he actually managed to persuade the principal to let him switch courses rather than kick him out, and consequently found himself on a graphics course, and it was on this course that he encountered three students who shared his musical interests. That was Chris Smith, who Freddie already knew, and Nigel Foster, and most importantly, Tim Staffel. Okay, now that's going to be a really important name. Got it. And I don't know if I'm, like, jumping the gun by saying this way too early, but it's because of Tim that we have Queen. And so if... Tim did not exist, there would be no queen. Stavel was an extremely good musician. He actually took up the harmonica in the early 1960s before moving on to the guitar and finally settling on the bass guitar as his instrument of choice. 
1964, he was playing the harmonica for a band called Chris and the Whirlwinds at Murray Park in Washington. In the audience that night was a young bass player and a young guitarist who happened to attend the Hampton Grammar School and who had just formed their own band called 1984. The bass player was Dave Dillaway, and the young guitarist was the young physicist who had built his, his own guitar with the help of his father in his workshop. His name was Brian May. Which you spoiler alerted that already, so... I know. So no one is surprised now. No one's shocked. Following the concert, the two of them tracked down Tim and persuaded him to join their band as the new singer and the harmonica player. And on October 28, 1964, Tim and the band, 1984, played their first gig ever at St. Mary's Church Hall in Twinkleham? Twinkleham. Twinkleham. <laughs> I love the names of... Like little London. English towns are really cute. <laughs> they have cute names. It's just Twinklem, but also they have really strange and bizarre and sometimes really long names, like it, Buckinghamshire. I know, but what what is their obsession with ham? I don't it's know. Twinkle ham. Flat well, ham. I think is it maybe Buckingham. is it maybe like an abbreviation of like Hamlet, possibly. Like a Hamlet is a cute little town. Yeah, that's something I didn't Google. So maybe it's something something to that effect? Yeah. Oh. By 1964, when Tim became friends with Freddie, 1984 had been gigging constantly around London, and they even recorded a number of songs at Tam's television studios. The band also supported Hendrix on May 13th, 1967, at a concert where he played at Imperial College in London, a concert that Freddie might have very well been himself so it's one of those things where could have conceivably been every member of the band could have been in one place at one time and had no idea because they hadn't been introduced to each other during the winter of 1967 staffel and friends were introduced to the band that he was fronting called 1984 and freddie and chris became regulars in the audience whenever and wherever they played across london according to smith it was fairly obvious that tim and may were standouts in the band but Brian actually left the band in early 1968 because he wanted to be in a group that performed their own material uh, rather than cover versions of songs. He also wanted to devote more time to his studies as he is enrolled in Imperial College in 1965 to study physics and infrared astronomy. That's not fair. <laughs> Why? Because you cannot be that talented and that smart. You yes, get, you can. You got to pick one. It's not fair to the rest of us. <laughs> a lot of times people are really smart that are that talented. I know. It's just not fair. And it's... also they say that music goes hand in hand with like math, math, math and science. Yeah. So if you're really good at math and science, then you're generally good with music. And that makes sense because I suck at math and science and I'm terrible at music. <laughs> well, see, there you go. But May kept in touch with Tim, and after 1984 had split, and a few months later, so they, they kept in touch after the band broke up, and a few months later, they decided that they wanted to do music again together, and so they actually got back together, but not as 1984. In 1968, May, who was attending classes at London Imperial College, and Tim formed a group when May placed an advertisement on, on a college notice board for a ginger baker Mitch Mitchell-type drummer. According to the 1992 biography Queen, as it began, the ad drew the notice of Roger Meadows Taylor, who was in another band at the time called The Reaction, 
Anne, who was studying at London Hospital Medical School to become a dentist. I booked this jazz club room at Imperial College, and Roger brought his kit, recalled May, in the 2011 documentary Queen's The Days of Our Lives. I brought a guitar, and for the first time we played together, something happened. We thought, hmm, there's something kind of special about this, and I guess we sort of had the same sound in our heads. Brian had never met anyone before who could actually tune his drums. Really? Yeah. I got, okay, when I was reading this, like, literally, I I figured you could, because you have to put the head on and, like, tighten it. Well, yeah. But I didn't know that there was, like, a specific sound that you were trying to accomplish, because I thought, yeah. it's a, like, a, like it's a, you know, it's a standard sound, like, a snare. It's not a standard sound. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I didn't, I, I guess I never thought about it. It was kind of like, when was the last time you thought about the person who draws the pictures in a courtroom? You just don't think I about guess. it. I guess. <laughs> I mean, but that's like when you're at a sound check and you hear the guy like, I mean, half of it is one checking his sound and half of it is checking his tuning. Taylor remembered in 2002 as quoted in Mark Blake's book, Queen, Is This the Real Life? He wasn't even aware that you could tune the drums. Typical guitarist. But he and I clicked straight away and his playing was beautiful. Do you know the name of the band they formed? Nope. Wait, was it Queen? No. Oh, well then no. It was not Queen. Because you're missing an important part of Queen. You're missing Freddie. He's not there yet. Okay. Well, then no, I don't know the name of that band. With a logo of huge smiling lips and large teeth, which were designed by Tim, it predated, and this is a big thing, it actually predated the Rolling Stones' famous lips logo by a few years. The band called themselves Smile. Smile rehearsed during the fall of 1968, and by Staffel's account, the band's first gig occurred on October 26th that year at Imperial College, opening for Pink Floyd. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Through Chris Smith, a keyboardist who had briefly played with Smile, believed the band's debut was actually in, sh- in support of the Trogs. You know the Trogs. Do I? Yeah, you do. Yeah, them. Yeah. Wild thing. So, like, I know you know them. You just might not know their name. You make my heart sing. Either way, most of the band's concerts at the time took place at Imperial College, and that's, of course, because Brian May was a, a student there and in Taylor's hometown of Cornwall. Smile's biggest concert at this point had happened in February of 1969 as part of a benefit show for the Council of the Unmarried Mothers and Her Child at the Royal Albert Hall. The bill also included... Bonzo Dog Band, Spooky Tooth, Joe Cocker, and Spooky Tooth. I, kinda, I love that I band like, name. I, I like lo- it too. <laughs> I love it so much. And it also had Joe Cocker. So, yeah, but it had Spooky Tooth. Yeah. I feel like you're going to go home and listen to Spooky Tooth now. I am. May Taylor and Stavel performed as a trio on guitar, drums, and bass, respectively. Keyboardist Chris Smith had been fired the day before, according to Tim. According to Smith, he was only briefly in the band and left on his own accord because he was interested in different styles. So, who's to say? By some stroke of luck, Smile was actually signed to Mercury Records in 1969, and they had their first experience of recording in a studio that was called Trident Studio. And I think that they actually recorded, like, when Queen forms, they actually record a lot of their stuff at Trident. So, Tim was attending Elin Art College with Freddie, at the time, and he introduced them to the band, and basically, Freddie became obsessed with them. So, he would follow them around. 
So nice. he kind of hendricks them. Um, Smile gigged quite a lot on the London scene, and uh, according to timeouts listing on April 19th, they played a speakeasy on the 31st of May and then appeared at Whiskey A Go-Go. Like in Hollywood, Whiskey A Go-Go? I don't know, but that seems very odd that there would be two Whiskey A Go-Go's. Let's look but, but uh, here's a here's another name that should be familiar, which makes me think that it's actually the Whiskey A Go-Go. In March 1969, the band played at a venue known as PJ's. Okay. Which is the same venue that Richie Valens played at, Sam Cooke played at. I'm only finding one Whiskey A Go-Go, so I'm guessing at this point they're in Hollywood. Yeah, but PJ's is the same bar that Sam Cooke went to, Richie yeah, Valens went to. Like, but I'm saying, so then that means that they're probably in L.A. at this point. Yeah, I know. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's just, it's yeah. like a weird, Yeah, it's a weird thing. I feel like yeah. at this point, we need to do a short set on PJ's and that we need to do a short set on Bob Kane. Where we accuse him of murder, basically, <laughs> several times over. <laughs> it's just weird that everyone around you dies. Kicks it. Sorry. Shortly after they were given a one-off recording deal by Mercury to record three tracks, Earth, which was written by Tim, Step on Me, which was May, and Doing All Right, which was uh, Tim and May. And I think Doing All Right is probably one of their most well-known songs. Those were the ones that were recorded in June of 1969 at Trident Studio in Soho. And I think that's... Okay. That's not the Soho we know-ho. It's... We know-ho? <laughs> we're at no-ho now. <laughs> there actually isn't a Soho here. There's not a Soho here. There's we-ho, there's no-ho, and, and there's, there's ho-ho. ho-ho. <laughs> but there's, there's no, no Soho. Jinx, you owe me a cook. Stop it. (laughs) Get out of my head. (laughs) So it's also around this period where Freddie became part of Smile's inner circle. He and Tim were students at the college together, and so that's how he kind of was brought in. And Bolsara loved Smile and attended many of the band shows, and he and other members of Smile hit it off, and they even shared an apartment together in London. Freddie was not shy in offering his opinions about the band's music or the look. He would always say, you guys are brilliant, brilliant, but you should do this, and you should do this. And May later recalled of his future queen bandmate in Days of Our Lives, and that's the the book, Days of Our Lives, not the album. Or the TV show? Yeah. <laughs> you mean he didn't guest spot in the... In the soap opera? No. To talk about Queen? Which is weird. It's so weird. <laughs> I think Freddie was in the wings when we first played. Smith later said, he was full of suggestions, full of ideas. And I said to Brian, Fred is a bit desperate to be in this band, you know. But Brian was like, no, no, no. Tim is the lead singer. He'd never wear it. Determined to be in a rock group, Mercury joined a, a number of bands like Ibex, Sour Milk Sea and Wreckage. <laughs> <laughs> and none of them panned out compared to Smile. Friday, October 31st, 1969. So, Halloween. Halloween. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Freddie, then known as Fred Bulsara, performed with his band Wreckage in the noisy common room at the technical college that he was attending. 
Mercury had recently been a student at the college, and wreckage now was booked by the student union president, Audrey Malden. The common room was a narrow space on the ground floor, and its walls were painted bright orange and without a proper stage. Wreckage actually had to set the gear up on the floor against a pinball machine and table football, and the clattering sounds from which had been given the common room its noisy moniker. So I guess people actually called it noisy common room. Oh, okay. So it was like, it would probably be like playing in the pod loft if we had a table football machine. We're not noisy. Table football, is that like foosball? I think, is it, what's in what's in the common area at? Foosball. That's foosball? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing it was like a foosball table. Okay. I was like, what do we have in our common area? That thing. A foosball where, table? That thing where you twist the knobs and the little soccer players like knock shit around. Foosball? Okay. It probably is that. So more than four decades later, Audrey Malden is now a marketing expert and a writer. Still remembers the show. They were crap, he said. (laughs) (laughs) The only good bit was when Freddie laid on his back and took the microphone off the stand and dangled it down his throat while wailing. He was doing anything to get the audience's attention. Nice. (laughs) I knew Freddie as this quiet, reserved bloke, which is... Crazy to think at some point, Freddie was quiet. (laughs) I could see that. Yeah. I used to sit next to him in the same corner of the graphic studio, and I heard that he sang in a group, but he was really never forthcoming about it. And then at this gig, he just busts on. Goading recalls, and this is uh, John Goading, who is an ex-student from the school. Goading recalls that the future Freddie Mercury had accessorized his homemade white suit with a pink chiffon scarf. Cool. Yeah. He was always in a sport jacket and jeans, so it was so shocking to see this transformation. And we're going to talk about this in the final Freddie Mercury episode, which was uh, the what's the difference between Freddie Mercury's actual life and his depiction in Bohemian Rhapsody. And if you are an eagle-eyed viewer and you watch the film, you'll notice that the shirt that his mother is wearing in the first scene that you see her is actually the shirt that he wears the first time that he meets Queen. Or the first time that he performs with Queen in the pub. Nice. So, just a little nod, but we'll get into all that when we do the what's the difference. So, at some point in the next three weeks, I have to watch this movie? Yes. Okay. You can come over here and watch it with me. I'll watch it again. We watched it like four days ago, and I'll watch it again. I don't care. (laughs) Well, I now have have it two ways. I have it... From the screener that you gave me to watch, and then it's also on my HBO now. (laughs) And I also have it digitally, and I have it on Blu-ray. So you have it four different ways. (laughs) Because I bought it when it was only a digital release, and then, of course, I bought it as a hard copy because I need that. Of course. I need to have have Queen whenever I want Queen. Now I do. There you go. That night, wreckage slugged through covers of Elvis's Jailhouse Rock, The Beatles' Rain, and Led Zeppelin's Communication Breakdown. But Freddie and the lead guitarist, Mike, I think his name is Burson, B-E-R-S-I-N, Mike Berson, had also written songs of their own, the likes of Vagabond Outcast and Cancer on My Mind, which was very much in the post-Cream, post-Hendrix spirit of the times. They sounded like Queen remembers Goading, but they weren't wholly Queen. 
Indeed, among Freddie's newest creations was Lover, a song that metamorphosized into Liar and turned to Bong Queen's debut album three years later. On that Halloween evening, if any, believed that they were witnessing musical history being made. Some people were watching the band, but others were sitting around chatting, reading newspapers, playing football, and I honestly thought they were a bit of a joke. So there's that genesis of creation, and some people were completely just checked out of it. Well, yeah. I don't think I've done anything like that, like not been engaged when someone's performing. I feel like if you come in and you get you pay money. Oh, no, it happens all the like, time. Does it? Yes. Well, you go out more than I do. It happens I... all the time. But, I mean, a little less so if you're actually paying to be there. But if it's a free show especially, it happens constantly. Yeah, fair enough. Despite the indifference displayed on the part of the audience, Freddie himself had begun to develop a genuine sense of bold ambition. In a letter written five days earlier to a friend and auctioned at Sotheby's, Freddie had declared his intentions for the forthcoming gig. This Friday, he wrote, I'm going to outpaunce everyone in sight. True to his word, he posed, he strutted, and he played a frantic air guitar in front of Mike Burson, just as he would years later with Brian May at Live Aid. The moves that Freddie did in Queen, he first did with us. It was all there, even then. Freddie was a star. He is a star. Meanwhile, um, at the behest of Mercury Records, Smile returned to the studio in the latter part of 1969 to record more material for a possible album. While Smile was recording, while Smile's recordings were certainly less theatrical and flamboyant and over the top compared to Queen, there's certainly foreshadowing of things to come. Tim's charismatic singing, May's distinct guitar sound, and Taylor's heavy drumming and shared harmony vocals. But none of Smile's recordings ever saw the light of day. By the early part of 1970, the writing was on the wall for Smile. In an archival interview, May once said, We had a lot of successful gigs. We played colleges and we played pubs and small clubs down in the country, but we never got anywhere. Then in spring of that year... <laughs> this, is, this is Will's favorite part of Amy Rhapsody. Staple announced that he was joining a new band called Humpy Bong. What? <laughs> that's just ridiculous. Is, that's Will's favorite party. <laughs> that's his favorite line to quote, Humpy Bong. What? Yeah. Humpy Bong. I just... D- what? What? I know it's no spooky tooth. <laughs> okay, but even that kind of makes sense. Humpy Bong. How do you even come up with that name? 1970s. All right. That's the best answer I can give you. 1970s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Humpy Bong. Humpy Bong. Tim announced that he was joining a new band called Humpy Bong, which included former Bee Gees drummer Colin Peterson, and Mercury actually dropped the band afterwards. So they 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 weren't awesome, but. No, they were not. They they were not successful. Um, They do have a song that's on YouTube, but I don't know it. And so when Tim left in 1970 to join the other band, Smile effectively disbanded. As for Staffel, Humpy Bong had a hit with Don't You Be Too Long during the summer of 70, 
before they broke up. And he actually landed a second career as a model maker for TV commercials and films and worked on the TV show Thomas the Tank Engine. So, huh? All right, then. Which, I mean, how old is Thomas the Tank Engine then? Old. Is it? Yes. I miss that train completely. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry for that pun. You should be. (laughs) In 2005, Staffel released his first solo album, Amigo, which featured a guest appearance by May. He put out another LP, Too Late. And at this stage in my life, the renewed opportunity to create music of my own was very welcoming. He told Patrick Lemix on the Queen website. I was first introduced to Freddie Mercury, a paradoxically shy yet flamboyant young man, which is, I guess that's what a paradox means, is that he was shy but flamboyant. Right. Which is cool. I love that duality. At the side of the stage at an early gig for the group Smile, May wrote on Google's official blog. And this was because Google actually put out a Google Doodle of Queen a few years back on what would have been, I think, Freddie Mercury's 70th birthday. He told me how excited he was to play and he had some ideas and he could sing. I'm not sure that we took him very seriously, but he did have an air of someone who knew he was right. At the time, May and drummer Roger Taylor were content with their current band, but there was something special about Mercury. A while later, we had the opportunity to actually see him sing, and it was scary, writes May. He was wild and untoward, but massively charismatic, and so he began his evolution into a world-class vocal talent right in front of our eyes. So when Tim left the band, a spot opened up for Mercury to join Smile shortly after, and at his request, they changed the name to Queen, and the young Farouk Balsora adopted the stage name Freddie Mercury. And on June, June 27th, 1970, the guys in Queen were just another struggling rock band showing up for a gig booked by the drummer's mother. So Roger Taylor's mom actually booked them a gig. Nice. <laughs> As noted on the guitarist's Brian May website, Queen were still going by their original name, Smile, when they were hired to perform at a show which was held at City Hall in the Cornwall Parish of, oh goodness, Truro, Truro, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And it was put together as a charity event for the Red Cross. Roger Taylor's mother was involved with the organization and booked the group well in advance, far enough ahead of time. When they finally took the stage, they had moved on to their new band name. Although the June 27th show ended up serving as an important milestone marker, marking the first time that May and Taylor publicly performed with Freddie Mercury as Queen, The band members later remember it as a less auspicious gig in musical terms. The Queen Live website quotes the band's bassist at the time, Michael Gross, as saying, We tried to hide the gaffes, but to be brutally frank, we were rough. Many of the details have been lost to time, but Stone Cold Crazy and Son and Daughter appear to be the only songs confirmed to have been performed, although it's considered likely that they had also had worked in songs that were left over from the Smile repertoire, as well as some covers. According to the Queen Live site, Taylor also remembers the group doing a work in progress, including its dynamic frontman, saying Mercury didn't have the technique that he had developed later on and sounded a little bit like a very powerful sheep. <laughs> he sounded like a sheep. <laughs> and that's a quote from Taylor. So <laughs> That's where we're going to leave you this week with the story of Freddie Mercury and Queen Check us out next week. I don't know how many episodes this is going to turn out, but I have joked about the month of Mercury because it's also 
it's it's Freddie's birthday month, but it's also my birthday month, so it's my own present to me. <laughs> it's just getting to talk about Queen. That and also, I don't know how you're going to get an hour episode out of the five hours we've been recording this. Today. There's another hour and a half on the computer already. Well, that's I combined it, so it's been three and a half. <laughs> it's been three today, three three and a half today, and an hour and a half or so yesterday. <laughs> but we did Janice in six hours, and I got that down to an hour, so hour seventeen. So I can do it. There's magic it involved. Wasn't six hours. You even said it was six hours in the recording. Huh? Yeah. Took us forever to record Janice. Is two parts. I know Freddie's going to be long. <laughs> Check us out next week where we continue the story of Freddie Mercury and Tracy continues to complain on how long my episodes are, but I'm sorry I had three books and a bunch of other material to draw from and it's one of my favorite subjects. So I promise all the other episodes will not be this long and October is going to be... You can't promise that. You can promise <laughs> October might not be this long. <clears throat> Oh, October's going to be fun. <laughs> It'll be fun. October's going to be fun. We've been discussing topics to talk about as opposed to like a singular person actually talking about different topics because I know you guys know right now that uh, I'm in the middle of idol auditions and Tracy is in the middle of live shows for AGT. So things are kind of crazy. So we wanted to kind of take a break in October and just have a good time and just talk about topics as opposed to one person and also go against the grain and not talk about uh, death and sadness in the month where death and sadness is pretty much okay. We're not going to talk about any deaths at all. Oh, no, there'll be death. It just yeah. won't be one person's death. Oh, okay. It'll be multiple people's <laughs> deaths. Multiple people's deaths. <laughs> you get a death, and you get a death, and you get a death, and, and you, you get, get a death. to die, too. Woo, woo. So, anyway, if you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can do our Twitter. You can find us on Twitter. At Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. That's it. Thank you for checking this episode out. Check us out next week. Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy. Yeah. You're going to have two dogs by the end of the day. I am. Are you excited? Mm hmm. Well, go see those pups. Yep. I got to go finish getting my house ready. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yesterday, my life was in ruin. Now, today, I know what I'm doing. Got a feeling I should be doing.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.